hello. Welcome back. Here we are again with another episode of Murder, She Read, the podcast where we read books, give each other dirty looks, and drink copious amounts of wine. On my left, I have the ever-lovely Amanda Fall. Oh, and on my right is Victoria Campbell. And here we are about to hit you guys with another exciting true crime book. I hope you're ready. I mean, you listened to the first one. Let's keep it rolling. Yeah, why not? So Amanda, will you tell our dear listeners what book we're delving into today? I would, but I don't know the name of it. Excellent. You read it. <laughs> Indeed, I did. I read a lot of it. Um, nearly all, I would say 90%. Um, today, we are reading Bitter Harvest by the queen of true crime herself, Anne Rule. Should we say that our initial idea for this podcast was to do specifically Anne Rule Book Club? However, we realized pretty quickly that that was, well, limited in the number of books that we could review and also pretty daunting yeah, if we're reading, or if I'm reading 52 books this year, being one a week, having a tome of Anne Rule seems very, very overwhelming to me. We also had a terrible working title for that, if you recall. I recall, I don't remember what it was. It it's, was Anne Rule Wine Book Club. That's a long one. It's pretty. <laughs> it's a lot. But here we are, episode two, doing exactly what we said <laughs> we weren't going to do. Well, with that said, let's get into it. So what I would like to tell our listeners first is about where this book takes place. Amanda, where does it take place? Oh, Kansas City. And where are we? Kansas City. Exactly. So this book uh, is literally close to home. Yeah, I don't know where Prairie Village is, but I imagine it's nearby. It's not far. They've got the gold over there. We don't, so we're not in that mm, poor parts. echelon. Um, but let's just dive right into it this week. All right, so the focal point of our book is this woman named Deborah Green. Um, so let's start with a little bit of background about young Deborah. Um, she has two parents. Most do. Some don't. <laughs> Fair. Um, she's got an older sister and a loving mother and father, and they wanted her to do really well in school, and she did. One of my favorite first things we learn about Deborah from Anne Rule is that she throws an offhand sentence in there that says that Deborah wet the bed until she was 12, but then just walks right away from that statement and never comes back You know, I didn't see that it. anywhere else, so I'm glad Anne found it. Thank you. I'm happy to report on the hard-hitting facts <laughs> Thank of you. this case. <laughs> Um, so Deborah does really well in school. Uh, she goes to college for engineering, uh, but she ends up studying chemistry, and then that bitch goes to medical school. Right. It should also be noted she, hell, what I found was that she possibly had an IQ of 165. Also, she graduated from the University of Illinois within three years, and she also graduated from medical school in three years. I read that, too. I imagine my IQ is that of a golden retriever. I took five years to graduate from college. Yeah, same. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, well, you, you took four years. Four and a half. Let's be generous. <laughs> Who's accounting? Um, but while she's in college, she meets this man named Dwayne Green, which is where her last name that she will keep for the rest of her life comes from. And they get married. And Pretty she's, quickly, too. Yeah, they do it real quick. She'd been dating. Did you read about this? Her high school boyfriend? No. Um, she dated this guy in high school who seemed like really nice. And she ended up breaking up with him because he wasn't as smart as she was. And she no was like, very is. caustic. Well, it didn't work out that well for her. Um, but she goes into oncology, but ironically enough, as we'll come to find out, she moves to working in the emergency room because she can't handle all of her patients dying. Is that the reason? Yeah, that's what oh, she stated. Okay. Um, do you have any information about how her marriage went to Dwayne Green? Um, I've got that it was just, it was fine. They were more friends than anything else. 
Um, they ended up divorcing in 1978. She is reported saying that they just didn't have anything in common, but they had an overall friendly divorce. Yeah, it seemed pretty amicable. Um, Deborah is stated as referring to her time in her life after her divorce as her hedonistic, excuse me, lifestyle, which sounds... Hi, yeah, our I'm whole lives. I think so. Remember that hedonic treadmill? That we're still on? Yeah, we're still looping. She got off, kind of. Um, and Anne Roll goes ahead and points out that right now, while she's living this hedonistic lifestyle, excuse me, Deborah is as attractive as she ever was or ever will be. I tried really hard to find pictures of young Deborah, and it's mostly mugshots of old Deborah. Yeah, and it is not beautiful for not great. old Deborah. Um, but she drinks a lot, she parties a lot, she dates a lot, and she drives a Jaguar convertible she bought for herself with cash. I mean, she wasn't doing it for very long. There, If she got separated in 1978, she remarried in 1979. She was quick on the, the turnaround there. Yeah. And who does she marry in 79, Amanda? Well, she meets Michael Farrar. Farrar? How do you pronounce his last name? Farrar. Farrar. Well, I'm going to leave that one to you. I, she meets him when they are, I think he's in his last year of medical school, and she is just graduating. Something along those lines. Um, she is four years his senior, and they also end up getting married pretty quickly. Definitely feel like there was some overlap between uh, Michael and Sweet Dwayne. Yeah, there's definitely perhaps some stepping out on young Dwayne. Um, Anne doesn't delve into that, but what she does say is that um, Michael was dazzled by her wit and intelligence and also her Jaguar car, which he's pretty into. Um, they had a very lavish honeymoon. However, they, my notes say, rarely got naked. Did not. Not at all. She wanted to read a book on their wedding night. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like not a terrible plan. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. <laughs> Um, but Mike also remarks, and this will be later, so perhaps it's through the lens of what we'll come to talk about in a little bit, but he talks about that she's quick to anger and she often engages in verbal altercations with people. Right. My favorite fact about their marriage is that obviously she keeps Dwayne's last name, which she claims to be for professional reasons, but I do want to point out that she's in a residency at this point and has no big professional career to like ground that fact on. Yeah, it's a pretty bold move. I feel she's like really acting like she's maybe to me more in this yeah. situation. <laughs> has got a lot riding on that last name. You just can't change it to Willis or Kutcher. Well, yeah, I mean later. <laughs> All right, so she's still operating under Green, operating literally and metaphorically, um, and they move to Cincinnati, which I spelled wrong in my notes. Bless me, uh, for Mike to do his residency. And Deborah, although she has switched from oncology to the ER, decides to go back to internal medicine at this point. Um, this is a time in her life where she is not happy. And Mike suspects that she's doing drugs. He literally finds narcotics in their home. But she's like, oh, I just found these in the hospital. So I was going to drop them off. But then I just took them home instead. Yeah, a lot of weird claims to just find pill bottles. Yeah, which I think in my general life doesn't happen. Not a lot, no. I mean, I guess substances are maybe better controlled, but still, it's very bizarre. Um, but he does a lot of, and we'll talk about this later, but like blind eye turning to stuff that I think if you showed Listen, up at my house with bills falling out of your pockets, I'd be like, a lot of thoughts on this man. <laughs> we'll get to them. Um, so what happens after Cincinnati? Or while they're in Cincinnati? Uh, in 1982, Tim is born. Um... I really skip through a lot of things and just hit some births. 
I mean, my notes. Well, who else, who else comes along? Because they definitely have sex at least three times. At least three. In 1984, Lissa came around. And I kind of don't have a ton of information here. Um, I know with both pregnancies, she took a six-week maternity leave and was very quick and adamant that she wanted to go back to work pretty fast. Yeah, she's going back into practicing. Um, but since she made that switch to internal medicine, she literally has to like redo all of her rotations and everything and take different board certification and she cannot pass them. Well, she doesn't study for them. No, because she thinks she's so smart. She's got that 165 IQ. Um, so she does not pass her board certified tests, but what's shocking to me is that you can apparently still practice without being board certified. Only private practice, I guess, is a thing. Um, I have around 1987-ish, um, Deb started her own private practice after, quote-unquote, not being asked back to the private practice she was employed at. I think that means she was fired. <laughs> what? I don't know if you have, like, a yearly situation. I think you're just either hired or not. I had heard that she is awful with patients. She, like, does not give a no. fuck. No. I imagine if you're like, I have a cold, she'd be like, suck it up, get out of here. I mean, that is kind of like me, but I'm not a doctor. You're also probably not going to an internalist for a cold. But if you did, right. boldly. Right, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, when she joins that private practice and asks her to leave, basically, they've moved back to Kansas City, Missouri. Mm-hmm. We're back from Cincinnati. And what else comes back is her drug problem. Right. Um, she's, like, legitimately taking pills that she's prescribed to her patients, including Tylox, which I think is out of vogue. I have never heard of them. But I think it's Oxycontin, basically. Uh, new names. It's fine. Um, and yet again, Sweet Mike, Sweet Mike finds them under the bed, and he, like, doesn't do anything about it. No, it's fine. Um, and then she gets pregnant again in 88. And I just want to point out that I have in my notes... And here we spiral. <laughs> yeah, and here she gets buck wild. She's also 37 years old at this point. Um, and so... She, she does not bounce back like she did. No. Anne Rule has a nice note because Anne Rule loves to talk about women's bodies. <laughs> um, she notes that she can't lose the baby weight here like she did before and is, like, deeply unhappy. What are these exact quotes that I see? <laughs> <laughs> these are prizes. You see the 40 to 50 pound mm-hmm. gain? Yeah. Anne notes that, and she says, in the thigh hip region, and dresses sloppily. Specific. Great. So during this point in their marriage, they're fighting all the fucking time. There's this weird anecdote that comes up again that she, like, takes his medical books and beats herself in the head and, like, around the body with them. Right. It's definitely noted that, um, so as... She wasn't bouncing back like she was before. She also was dealing with a lot of chronic pain, and her private practice was failing. Um, In 1992, she gives up her practice. Things weren't going well in the relationship. It is noted, I assume by Mike several times, that in her rage fury, she would self-harm and make threats to harm him and the kids. Yeah, she's, as you said, spiraling for sure. She's getting pretty buck wild here. So in 92, she gives up her practice. She becomes a homemaker, and she works part-time out of the house doing medical peer reviews. From all accounts of people that worked with her in this time, she is really unfeeling to patients and is obsessed with Michael. Things weren't going well in their relationship, as Victoria said. Michael was working really long hours to cope with this. He was just trying to avoid the situation in general, and she turned the children against him. He alleges that she has been self-medicating and abusing pills for years at this point. But he doesn't do anything about it, which I think is problematic. Well, it's very problematic. Like, I think that if you were, like, casually taking a bunch of prescription painkiller Zachary would probably 
talk to My you. husband might notice, at least. <laughs> if he finds them under the bed, you're like, I don't know how those guys... Gatsby put those down there. <laughs> Blame the cat. Yeah. <laughs> all right, now we can jump ahead to 94. Thank you. I skipped all of uh, 88 to 92 because it was too depressing. Okay. Um, but in 94, they separate, and as I said, Deb starts talking a lot of trash to Mike about her kids, and in a way that is really sexually explicit. Oh. Um, and Mike ends up moving out, and he moves to an apartment on the plaza, Amanda. Oh, on the plaza, you say? Yeah, what do you know about the plaza? Well, I work there, and you it's do. awful. <laughs> you too. Animal uh, puts it through this, like, rose color band. She's like, the beautiful plaza. It might City. have been at that time. It wasn't that long ago. Victoria. It was 94. <laughs> it was 10 years ago. What? <laughs> uh, but they did. They stayed in contact. They shared an informal custody um, and their separation in different living houses, whatever, was apparently all that they needed to realize that this very unpleasant union was the dream life because they then <laughs> attempt to reconcile. They do. And not only do they reconcile, they decide to buy this big ass mansion house. Because you know what solves everything when your wife is a rage monster with a drug problem? A bigger home. Or like a baby, maybe? No, just put a bigger home. Okay, whatever floats your boat. Um, so they go ahead and start the process of buying this house, and then Mike gets cold feet. Right. We're in May of 94 here, so we're four months after the initial separation. It's not lasted long. They're bidding on a six-bedroom home in Prairie Village, Kansas at it's this got point. a four-car garage, which is unnecessary. I can't imagine owning one with a one car. I don't even own my car. I can't drive more than one car. Mm-hmm. Not just at a time, period. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Um, so we're in this period of time, and Mike's like, fuck, fuck, we shouldn't buy this house. Well, he's saying he backed out because he had some concerns over the state of their marriage, Why? which is shocking. All those pills that the cat put under the bed? Could be. Um, but one night while Mike is at work, he gets an emergency call about the house that they're living in currently, not the big mansion, um, that the house is on fire. So he comes home in a panic, and he's like, oh, my family, my family, we've got this dog, Boomer. Um, and he is trying to call Deb, and he gets in touch with her, and they're at a soccer game. The kids are fine. Deb yeah, is fine. The dog gone. is with them. Um, but the house is fucked. Uh, it was uh, due to an electrical fire. It was an innocent situation. Um, they all move into Mike's apartment. On the plaza. Why not? And then they uh, try to renegotiate the Prairie Village home. They do. And something that happens in that time frame, um, Mike is obviously talking to his friends about the fire, and his friend is like, well, your your crazy wife did that. She absolutely started that fire. Uh, well, she didn't start this. She got some ideas. I think she started that fire. What I read in the book was that the fire was caused by a cord wrapped around a copper pipe, like twizzlered around it. I didn't see. I read the whole court document. Oh, I'm sorry for you. Yeah, that's where I got the fuck hole note, though. We'll come to that later. Don't you <laughs> worry. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I didn't see anything about that. It said that after the investigation, it was completely ruled as just an electrical fire. Insurance paid it out, and they decided not to try to salvage the property. Yeah, they actually make a profit on it. Um, but later, of course, as things unfold, there will be some questions returning about that fire. Or perhaps you're right, maybe she just gets an idea from it. Um, but as I mentioned, Mike's friend was like, your wife started that fire to get you back, you dumb, dumb, dummy. And he's like, no. 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 Never the pills under the bed. 
really uh, harking on that. <laughs> I'm offended by it. I understand. Hide them better. Well, during this time, so they are moving into the Prairie Village home, and at this point, they are both trying to fundamentally change who they are as people. Weird, it's going not well. <laughs> by the end of 94, the shit is completely sour. Yeah, Mike wants out. Um, Deb is drinking a lot at this point. I don't have her drinking until later. Oh, I've got her drinking now. So she's starting to spiral Speaking in a way of. where she's not taking... She's not, as she did promise Mike, that she would stop taking pills. She has. Um, but she's definitely starting to drink more. And as Amanda said, their relationship is completely soured. I hope you can pick up on the mic that I poured wine in both of our glasses. So let's move on to warmer climates. Um, where Ooh, can do they I go? pick it up? Yeah, take it. So... By the end of 94, Mike knows he wants the divorce. But here's the thing. So they their kids go to Pembroke, which is the, like, fancy-ass school in Kansas City. As far as I know, it's the fanciest. They've got a two-week spring break. It's a whole situation. And there is a school-sponsored trip to Peru scheduled for June of 95. So Mike wanted to wait to bring up the divorce until after... This still seems like such bad behavior. Very suspicious <laughs> on his part. But during this trip, he meets Margaret Hacker, a registered nurse who chil- whose children also attend Pembroke. There's only one problem, Victoria. Amanda, is she married? She is totally married. <laughs> She's married to an anesthesiologist. Shockingly, this stopped no one, and they began an affair, either during the trip or shortly afterwards. They'll always claim after, but I'm sure they were fucking in the Amazon. I mean, it does say that late July he asked for divorce again. So this is a matter of weeks. They were for sure fucking in the Amazon. And what's Where's the Amazon? Is that in Peru? I said that, but is that right? You know, we're not geographers. Anyway, um, when they get back, as Amanda said, they're full affair. And Mike tells Deb that he wants a divorce. She's drinking. She loses her shit. And how much is she drinking? Do you have notes on this? I don't, but what I do have is that one of her concerns is that their divorce might disqualify the children from participating (laughs) in debutante events. She's very concerned. I have seen Gilmore Girls, and I know for a fact Rory was allowed in the debutante ball. Is that what happened? I don't remember. I've never watched that, but I do know that her parents were divorced. Listeners. Or maybe they weren't married. Do you watch the Gilmore Girls? Have you seen that episode recently? Can you let me know? Was that a debutante ball? I'm not positive anymore. I think it was a debutante ball. In um, in Gossip Girl, Serena Vanderwoodson gets to be in a debutante ball, although her parents are divorced. See, look, we've got proof. We watch TV. I don't even know if that's how the storyline goes, but here we are. Oh, I do have Green started drinking heavily. After- <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, so Michael declined to move out. Oh. All right, so I have got where on August 4th, he's filed for divorce. Um, he's still living in the house at this point. But I've got two different uh, versions of this story. Both, I think, are fun. Um, So either Michael was called home for work from the kids who found Deborah unresponsive, or Deborah called from the house and said that she was leaving, going to go walk the streets of Kansas City and hope to get hit by a car. Pretty dramatic. That's extremely dramatic. Not very busy streets here, I will say. Is that what you do every time you and Zachary get in a fight? Yeah, I storm out and walk down my lonely road. Um, Looking for headlights. So either way, he comes home. By the time he comes home, she's disappeared. But she's gone all night. Uh, He comes home August 5th, and she is back at the house. He later finds out, or she later admits, that she had been hiding under a bed in the basement the entire time. (laughs) 
trying to worry him. He clearly wasn't worried. He went to work the next day and was like, fuck this shit. Pathological. (laughs) It's a little bananas. Um, So when that doesn't get her the attention that she wants, we've got August 11th. Michael falls violently ill numerous times starting on August 11th. He, oh, you want to take this over right here. I did. I what demanded is, that Amanda gave me the, give me the, What does uh, uh, Deb make him? All right, so Deb, who is known not to cook, she always, like, feeds the kids fast food, and she's not a great homemaker. Um, she's like, hello, husband, I've made you this chicken salad sandwich. Um, and he's like, oh, how nice. And he eats it, and is like, this tastes wonky. And in my experience, if you eat anything mayonnaise-based that tastes bad, you don't eat it. You just stop. You know something bad is coming for you if you eat that. Well, and then if after you eat something mayonnaise-based and you are shitting and puking for seven days straight, you don't assume that you picked up a bug in Peru four months ago. Yeah, that's bad math. It was a month ago, but still. I mean, you're also a doctor, so hopefully you have a better idea of... He thought it was a strain of typhoid. I did a light Google. The, <laughs> the incubation period. The incubation Dr. period Fall. is three days to a month, but I, it's well over a month at this point. I mean, I guess you never want to think that your wife is poisoning you. Don't worry. He doesn't for a no. while. Um, so after seven days, he finally goes to the hospital. Seven days. He is dehydrated. He's just shit vomiting. He has sepsis. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, you are a doctor. Um, but he got better and he was released by August 25th. He comes home. Day he comes home. What does Deb do? Well, uh, she's like, oh, you're back. My one true love. Here's some spaghetti. And then what happens? Well, he's back in that fucking hospital. And he's just like, oh my God, that typhoid is raging. And that's not the end of it. Um, he's back again and then he eats some like, a cornbread that she makes, and he's back into the hospital. Right. I've got, he's released five days later on the 30th, fucking rinse and repeat. He's re-hospitalized. <laughs> he has not put two and two together. It's not until September 11th that he's finally out. Sponge bath and repeat is what you've got there, basically. Um, basically, yeah. Uh, so, September 11th, he is released from the hospital for the final time. We have about two weeks of quietness. On September 25th, uh, worried she was self-medicating again, still, question mark. He's finally realized there's a problem. He searches the house, and he finds castor beans and vials of potassium chloride in her purse. Yeah, that's alarming. Well, sh- he thinks she's suicidal. Yeah, he's like, he oh, doesn't she's just pick up on... He's not put two and two together. I have that repeatedly. Um, he has her committed. Yeah, I probably would, too. I mean, she's drinking an exceptional amount. She's hiding under beds and calling him, like, some nightmare from your worst dream as a child. Um, She's talking so much trash to the kids. Uh, She tells the kids that he's fucking three women whom he met on the Peru trip. And the kids are... She was wrong about two. (laughs) Well, that means she's 33% correct, which is bad odds, and I did quick I think she's being gaslitted here. (laughs) Gaslitted, gaslit. We're fine. It's whatever. Um, so yeah, he gets her committed, and the thing that I found that I thought was so um, relatable was that the cops enter the house during the daytime. She's wasted, and she's laying drunk in bed, naked from the waist down. Was it you 
That's how I sleep. What do you want? What is this? Have, is this going to... Are we predicting a future here? What are you trying to say? I'm just looking down the lens of the future. I Great. don't know. Um, but this is when she starts using Amanda and my favorite terminology in here, which is... Fuckhole. So the ER doctor stated that once she was brought in, she was totally fine, obviously drunk, but uh, pleasant-ish. As pleasant as she is capable of being, until Michael walks in the room. She spits at him, calls him a fuckhole, and told him, you will get these kids over our dead bodies. That's a little ominous. Uh, He still doesn't think that anything's wrong, and she checks herself out a few hours later and was found... Walking home from the hospital. Yeah, just like a light stroll through the streets yeah. of Kansas When she's City. picked up, she agrees to go to the manager clinic, clinic in Topeka. At this point, she is diagnosed with major bipolar depression and suicidal impulses and then sent home after four days. Yeah, she signs herself out because she went willingly, so she signed herself in. She didn't actually have oh. to be um, forced into the mental hold, so she can sign herself out whenever she wants. Well, at this point, Michael, very slowly has figured out with a light... They don't have a Google at this point. I don't know when that was invented. But he read some medical textbooks, realized castor beans you can extract ricin from and then use that to poison someone. Um, He moves out October 5th. But, like, what the fuck? He left the kids. He did leave the kids, even though she made that not veiled threat at all to him. She's just diagnosed. What do we have like five days earlier, 10 days earlier as being bipolar with suicidal impulses, has tried to kill him, is abusing drugs, is a drunk, and he just leaves the children. And he says later on, he'll say that he decided to leave the kids because uh, he thought that no court would grant him custody while their mother was alive. But I call bullshit. Bullshit. I'm calling bullshit. I'm not trying to blame him i don't that that needs to be said no this isn't a victim blaming situation no no no, no, no i'm just saying it, it seems a little what's the word i'm looking for suspect not suspect no i mean i would say negligent it seems a little negligent and it seems like he's being very self-centered in this like he's definitely looking out for his well-being and he's only coming and going as it impacts him yeah, which is uh, going to very much uh, play into what's going to happen as we take this story forward. All right, Victoria, it is now October 24th. Go. All right, so um, in our book that I read this week, this is the beginning of the narrative, which is what we've been working towards and telling you the background on these people for the past 20 minutes or so. Um. So we're now on Canterbury Court, as Amanda and I mentioned, which is in Prairie Village, where there is a lot of gold. This is a fancy house they got. It was $400,000, which at the time, I don't know, we did a conversion last time, but that was the 70s money. $4 million! I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> 6.7. It's uh, that's four-car garage. Um, but 1995. It's a, it's a huge house. Um, so this is the house that they bought when after the first fire. And so Deborah's living in there with her three children, and there's a swimming pool here. There's a wine cellar with 700 bottles of wine. Can I move in? You're not allowed. Oh. Um, and so we're on the night of October 23rd, 1995. Um, and again, in this house, we have mom, Deborah, we've got Lissa, Kelly, and Tim. Um, and the family goes to bed that night. It's a windy night, which is not uncommon 
in Kansas in the fall. And Deborah is 100% sure that she turned on the burglar alarm, excuse me, and the smoke alarm is set to ready. However, this huge fire breaks out at the house. Somehow Deborah gets out and she goes and she bangs on the neighbor's door and she's like, please call the police. There is this huge fire. My children are in there. However, the neighbors call the police. Deborah's standing outside the house, allegedly emotionless and just watching that shit burn. But this is with her. No, not yet. Suddenly, on the roof of the house, a figure is illuminated by the blaze, and it is her baby girl, Lissa. And she is running. Lissa's the middle one. Yeah. She's running across the roof of the house. She jumps onto the roof of the garage and is screaming for her mother, whom later she'll say didn't hear her. Um, Her mom sees her, puts her arms out, and says, jump, 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 which Lissa does because she has no other recourse, and her mom fucking misses her. I imagine she just, like, stepped back. (laughs) (laughs) She closed her arms. Um, But she hits the ground, but she's young. She weighs, like, seven pounds. I don't know what ten-year-old weighs. Who knows? Um, But she's... Lissa is fine. Uh, So the two of them stand there and literally watch their lives burn. So the cops show up, and Deborah and Lissa are standing outside. And... Um, the cops are obviously freaking out and the fire department is on the way and the firefighters get there. They can't get in the house. They can't get in the house. Deborah is yelling, my two children are in there. Um, and the firefighters, firefighters, excuse me, are finally able to get into a window, but they can't find either of the missing children. Yeah. They can't get far into the house. And I think what I read was they're only able to access the first floor. They got to the second floor, but the thing is that house is so fucking big that there's like a children's wing. Which is totally separate from where they could get into. Oh. Um, And the building is so structurally unsound that the firemen have to get out of there. Um, And they're heartbroken about it. They know that these children are in there, but they can't find them. So overnight, the firefighters are able to put out the fire. Uh, Mike obviously shows up because he's called by Deb. Um, And Mike... He is called by a neighbor. Oh, really? Yeah. He's called by the neighbor. Deb didn't call him? Deb does not call him. Oh, I think that old Anne may have glossed over that special. Yeah. A neighbor calls, says, your house is on fire. And I'm assuming it's the same neighbor that she knocked on the door of. That would make sense, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're both taken to the police station, as is Lissa. And at the police station, Deb is acting erratically. (laughs) I think is the word that I'm going to use. She's trash-talking Mike to the cops, and she's not really acting like a grieving mother. And obviously, we all know that in times of uh, intense emotional trauma, people don't always act the way that you think that they would. Right, but she's she's also referring to her children in the past tense. Yeah. Um, She makes a mention of they go to Pembroke, well, at least the ones that are alive, which is like a weird thing to do. I can't imagine that you're immediately speaking of your children in the past tense. Yeah, and the cops haven't even told her, as we will later find out, that although both children did die, Deb doesn't know that yet. I mean, it's an assumption, but it's still a weird... It's just a weird vibe from her. Yeah, and the cops, um, Anne Rule loves to use the word hinky. Um, so she says that they get a hinky feeling. She talks about this in many of her books. Um, but so the cops are suspicious of her pretty immediately. Um, and then they interview... Mike and they tell him that both of his kids didn't make it and he is heartbroken. He can't keep it together. He's 
sobbing throughout this interview, and it's standing basically in stark contrast to the conversation they had with Deb. Right. He also picks this moment to finally tell the authorities that his wife tried to kill him a few months ago. She feels like, okay, just rewind. Like, why don't you call the cops as soon as you find out? Well, what do you think about him? Like, what is his reasoning for, he like, protecting him He just seems so from detached from all of it. You think so? You know, I did find out he's still an active cardiologist in Kansas City. We could call and ask him, but I, I, I don't know him. that he would love that. No, he's not going to like us after this number. No. Um, but, I mean, I obviously, like, I feel for the guy. This is a lot. But it seems like he detached so much em- emotionally and mentally from everything that was going on because he just didn't want to deal. That he had made these decisions, and he tried really hard to fix it, but he didn't really tried to take himself and the kids out of it. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I think it's a pretty good look into that. Look, I'm a doctor. I told you, Dr. Fall earlier, put an MD on it. You can practice in a private practice. I could be a psychologist? Well, I think you actually like need a certification for that, but you can like tap my knee with a hammer if you want. <laughs> that's exactly Get my one. specialty. <laughs> Old hammer, Dr. Fall? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, to take us down into more depressing terms outside Sorry, of Sorry, I tried to lighten that up. New knee knock practice. Um, so investigators go in and they start looking for evidence of arson the next day. And what they find is accelerant all over the house. Um, an accelerant, which I didn't know, could be gasoline, which is how I always imagine it. It could be anything. It could be vodka. Yeah, it can be anything that accelerates a flame. Well, now I know. Yeah. Um, but they find really fucked up evidence, specifically that the place where there is the most accelerant present is the, um, I mentioned there were different wings in the house. Mm-hmm. So there's a children's wing and, or the kid's wing, whatever they're going to call it, I guess children's wing sounds like a very clinical hospital thing, but they're both doctors. Um, so there's like a ton of accelerant at the, um, like the foot of the stairs that would lead up that way. So even right. if the kids were able to get out of their rooms, the fire would have been largest there, so they uh-huh. couldn't get out. It also led back to the master bedroom. Yeah, it's a pretty bad scene for Deb. Um, yeah, they pretty immediately determined it to be arson and then pretty immediately decided it was Deb, but don't take much action for a while. No, they don't. And they're doing a lot of following her pretty closely. She um, still has custody of Lissa. Yeah. Yeah. Which is horrifying. Yeah. She's living with her parents and Lissa in like a rented motel room. Um, Lissa's still doing her ballet stuff that she's really into and they're trying to maintain normalcy in her life, but it's pretty fucked up. And the only bright point in this for me is that there's a really, I didn't know this, there's a, a dog who looks for accelerant in houses, um, like a cadaver dog, but oh. an accelerant fire dog. And. That little pup, like, goes around sniffing and looking for spots and wherever it sounds off, they, like, drop a flag and then they know Uh its name was Avon. So this is going on behind the scenes, obviously, all of this work with the arson investigators. Um, And in the meantime, there's a dual funeral for the children. And Deb is behaving erratically, again, is the word that I'm going to use. She's very rude to the funeral home staff, although that's not abnormal for her we mentioned no, that she's earlier pretty on. rude to everyone yeah uh she calls her father-in-law an asshole during 
the Not memorial a fuck service. Hole? No, no, she reserves that for her husband, please. Oh, okay. Um, and Mike had picked out some songs to be played that he knew the kids like, and she literally makes the like finger and mouth gagging faces during it, which is a little bold. What the fuck is wrong with this woman? Well, many things, as it would turn out. Um, a lot of people are talking about. Deb, but she maintains that Margaret is actually, in fact, to blame for the fire. Right. Um, and while this is going on, police, although not like in the front pages of the news, are slowly but surely gathering evidence against Deb. Um, they take hair samples from her, and uh, when people are involved in arson attempts, they are usually not bright about it. Although I guess if you're an arsonist, you're probably not like an A-plus genius. But if you leave a trail, say, for example, if Please. you decide to burn down my house yeah. tonight, yeah, you come over here with two liters of vodka. Just say. Well, I was going to come over with two liters of vodka either way. But. <laughs> well, if you don't want to drink it, you want to burn it down so I can get insurance money or kill Let's me. Let's go for it. Call. Yeah. Um, you put it all over the house and you're like, yes. And then you light a lighter or a match and then you throw it obviously that shit goes up immediately yeah it's an accelerant it's not a slow burn situation um so invariably a lot of times when arsonists are attempting to do something of this scale as in this house they get burnt themselves that makes sense um so often in arson investigations and i knew none of this until yesterday um you can actually find the arsonist because they themselves exhibit signs singed hair singed hair that's right and so they <clears throat> get a sample of Deb's hair. Which she had had a haircut. Two. Two haircuts. Two. She was like, oh, it looks so bad. I have to get this other one. But they was still singed. They could still find traces of singed hair. Yeah, despite the fact that she had had the haircuts, it was singed. Um, so that's pretty damning initially. And then she goes ahead and says um, that it just, it was when she was... You know, just in the house, it was just the smell of smoke that permeated her hair, which doesn't work. Like, it was definitely burnt. Um, eventually, after all of this goes to pretrial, and the state has a pretty damning case against Deb based on everything we said about poisoning Mike, about the fact that her hair is singed, about she made these threats to her husband, um, Deb's attorney, who's been a really big advocate for her, sits down and is like, you got nothing. Did you do this? Um, and she says yes. She started the fire. Yeah, she pleads no contest. She is guilty. She does. And there's this one other piece of damning evidence that happens. So we just talked about the singed hair. And the other thing is that her daughter, Lissa, remembers seeing her in this bathrobe um, that later the arson investigators find singed hidden. Oh. Um, that is, like, the last piece of damning evidence that she can't walk away from. Um, but she eventually admits to her attorney that, yes, she started the fire. She's like, I didn't use accelerant. Yeah, did. That sweet dog Avon found it. Yeah. Um, and so she pleads, as Amanda said, no contest to the charges. Um, but the judge gives her a double life sentence, basically. In Kansas, you can get... 40 hard years? Yeah, which means that you have to serve 40 years before you're ever eligible for parole. So I'm just surprised that she's even going to be eligible for parole. But in 2035, when she is 84, I believe, 
she will be eligible. She has recently contested this in, I think, 2004. Um, There was a ruling somewhere... I think it was a Supreme Court ruling. Look, I should have written this down. Um, that, because her, she didn't go to trial trial with a jury. Right. She pled guilty, no contest, so a judge gave her her sentence. That was eventually a rule, ruled illegal. Like, you couldn't get a life sentence from that. Um, so she tried to contest it. The DA informed her that they were going to be up for uh, the death penalty if she were to actually take this back to court. And then she was like, no, no, oh, no, no. I pass. know what evidence is against me. But then Kansas got rid of the death penalty, so she tried the next year, and it was thrown out. She tried again, I think, in 2014. That and, recently? Yeah, once again was denied. Huh. Well, good. I'm happy that she's not getting out anytime soon. But I will say something that I read, Anne Rule loves an epilogue. Um, so I finally finished the 46 chapters of this book that I read. How many chapters were about, um, anything relevant? 30. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a bold move. Probably 15. Um, probably had a busy week. All right, so she shimmies on into the prison in Topeka. She had exchanged a couple of letters with Deborah beforehand, um, and Deb grants her an audience or whatever the term is for that shit. And so she goes in there, and Deb is up to this behavior where she just like blames everybody but herself she blames tim for the fire she also blames tim for poisoning michael she certainly does that which is bold that's your dead son but thank you um and she also blames margaret for starting the fire she blames some stray people whom she probably fabricated running through the neighborhood for starting the fire so she's totally gone back on her no contest plea and is like, I didn't have anything to do with this. Well, I mean, her argument, I don't think is unsound. She was recently put on a bunch of new medications. Um, she did have an untreated up until like two weeks before the fire had a severe bipolar depression that was completely untreated for her entire life. But... That doesn't mean that I think that she's innocent. I I think that she lived in a state of drug fugue and probably doesn't remember a ton of stuff that happened at that time. But, I mean, this was clearly a malicious. Yeah, and that's what she said to Anne Rule. She was like, I was just drunk. Look, I'm drunk a lot. You've never burnt your house down? Not once. (laughs) It could happen tonight. Well, I mean, fucking knock on wood. Enjoy that sound, podcast audience. Just cut it off. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that our final takeaway from that is... Um, Don't kill your kids. Yeah, probably. Well, I think that's a general rule. We should We should cut that, too. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> What's our general takeaway? Our general takeaway is that this is just a really horrifyingly sad story. It is really sad. And I think you and I, when we started doing this podcast, we um, we like to talk about true crime because it interests us. And for me, it's something like... I want to understand sort of the psychological aspect behind, uh, but this is something that I cannot wrap my head around. So, well, I don't think that our intention here was to have a total bummer of an episode. I think that's what we ended up with, which I guess kind of maybe sets the tone for this podcast. We're not always going to be 100% funny, although we do acknowledge that sometimes our humor is at inappropriate times. We do want to not apologize for that because it is how we're going to cope with this. But I think that that is a general theme amongst people that do like true crime. I think that we realize our morbidity, but um, 
in a lot of these stories, there is a general conversation about mental health that needs to be had. Yeah, absolutely. So the beneficial thing here is that we're having a conversation about mental health, and hopefully today, in this day and age, people are more willing and welcome to talk about it. Absolutely. Did we mention that our wine glasses have tits on them? Here we go. Cheers, guys. Let's, uh... Let's close this fucking book. Right, Because it was hard to read, I'm sure. A doozy on Bitter Harvest. But thank you guys for listening. We hope you come back. We promise not to bum you out every week. And uh, if you're interested in connecting with us on the internet, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at MurderSheRedPod or on the old Twitter at MurderSheRed. Yeah, absolutely. Do it. Please. Follow us. Give us ideas. If you know of a really cool true crime book that's not really well known, let's not do another Anne rule, at least for a while. Mm-mm. Give ourselves a break. Um, tweet at us. Let us know. We would love to hear what you've got to say. Yeah, send us a carrier pigeon. I don't care. All right. Yeah. F- fucking shit. Follow us on the tweets. Follow us on the Instas. We are going to try to do better at posting more shit. Don't follow us in real life. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. I mean, it. just, like, not with a machete. No, definitely not with a machete. Um, I mean, light stalking, I think, might be... No, I'm going to cut it right here uh, before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> Look, it was a bad joke. I'm still shh, into it. Stalking is the sincerest form of flattery. You're grounded. It's over for you. <laughs> Look, I'm always grounded. <laughs> I think on that note, we need to sign off. I think so, too. But thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. We know most of you know us personally. All of you know us personally. <laughs> Let's be real. Maybe one day we'll get some followers that don't, though. They wouldn't listen. It's fine. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye.